This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder, and my guest is known as the Comma Queen. I prefer to be called a prose goddess, <laughs> but I'll take Comma Queen. Mary Norris, prose goddess, has been a copy editor at a temple of great writing, the New Yorker magazine, for more than 30 years. I can't define what I'm doing while I'm doing it, why I'm making certain changes, why I'm suggesting certain changes, but I know that what I'm trying to do is make the reader keep going. She's also trying to make the writer keep going, the writer inside her. I was firmly pigeonholed as a proofreader and a copy editor. Nobody thought of me as a writer. Mary Norris kept writing and submitting her work and absorbing rejection after rejection. And I was sitting in my office entertaining the thought that that's what it'll say on my tombstone. She was a good copy editor. And it was that so bad? And I was on you know, of the verge of reluctant acceptance. I would not stop writing. I would never stop writing. I would always bounce back from a rejection. And, you know, that's how it finally happened. It has finally happened. Mary Norris's book, Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen, made the New York Times bestseller list and has just been released in paperback. She has a way of making grammar and punctuation and her own life story entertaining and empowering. I visited Mary on a day when, as you'll notice, she was fighting a pretty bad cold. Mary Norris, uh, author of Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. Welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you, Michael. First question I have for you is, are you an insanely curious person? I would say I am. I think that's why I like the title of this podcast, yes. Have you ever been just mildly curious and then something took you over the edge and made you insanely curious? Yes. Uh, every time I look in the dictionary, I get insanely curious as soon as there's a reference to something else. Mildly curious would be just looking up a word. Insanely curious is following the trail of every synonym and every reference down to the root of the word, down to some crazy Turkish carpet somewhere. <laughs> I love doing that. Here we are speaking in one of the conference rooms at the New Yorker magazine where, as we all know, many of the finest writers in the entire world have come to submit their work. And you are in many ways a gatekeeper, but much more. Describe your job. Well, I am not a gatekeeper in, in the sense that I don't choose what goes into the magazine. The editors do that. In England, I'm what is called a sub-editor, if that gives you an idea. We don't work in the basement exactly, but what we do, we work at the level of the sentence mostly, and our job is in the details. We read the piece after it's been accepted for publication, and we impose New Yorker spellings on it, we correct blatant misspellings, and we tinker a little bit with punctuation. We like the serial comma at the New Yorker. And then at the next level... You, you said, by the way, I have to pause you there, you like the serial comma. What is a serial comma? The serial comma, also known as the Oxford comma, is the one before and in a series of three or more. People who don't use the serial comma, the Times does not use it. 
It's named for the Oxford University Press. Oxford University Press does use it. Um, it is thought to be unnecessary because and means the same as a comma in that context, red, white, and blue. But some years ago, many years ago, somebody decided that it cluttered things up and it would move faster. The news, which is ephemeral anyway, needed to go faster. So they would speed it up by taking out a comma. We have all the time in the world to read this magazine, so we keep the comma in. Which is so nice because in this fast-paced world, uh, and, and I've heard this from so many people in so many different fields, including Bill Urey, who wrote a, a very big book in the 1980s called Getting to Yes about the art of negotiation and started the Harvard program on negotiation. He says one of the most important skills in negotiation when things get heated is to pause. It's almost like you could see those commas. I said, how long does a pause have to be if things are getting too intense? He said, Michael, somebody once taught me that when you feel your emotion getting in the way or about to get in the way, all you need to do is pinch the inside of your palm that length of a pause can change the whole direction of a negotiation. What, tr what thoughts get triggered when you hear that from your perspective? Well, that's fascinating because I, I think of the comma as a pause. A lot of people think of the comma as only a pause, although it's much more than that. But the idea of bringing in negotiation is really interesting because we do have to negotiate some of the changes that we'd like to make um, in prose with a writer. And I had a conversation just last week. I'm going to sneeze, excuse me, for a second. Yes. <laughs> we are keeping the sneeze in because Mary Norris has been kind enough through this horrible cold she has to, uh, to go ahead with this interview. So that's... Uh, Okay, that's so a sneeze is a pause. I didn't sneeze on your microphone anyway. A sneeze is a major pause. I don't know what kind of pause. Is it a, pa is it a pause and an ex is there anything that comes close to a comma and an exclamation point like a sneeze? Oh, that's pretty good. I like that. A comma and an exclamation point followed by a semicolon. <laughs> that would be where you blew your nose. So I don't want to interrupt you, Philip, because you were just talking about the negotiation between editors and writers. Great writers. Uh, well, the negotiation that I had in mind in particular was between me and our cartoon editor here, Bob Mankoff. I'd taken, I'd put a comma into a cartoon caption. The caption was, check it out, guys, I got my wine legs. And it was somebody very bandy-legged who was drinking wine and was drunk. And the joke, of course, was about sea legs, wine legs. And the comma I put in, check it out, comma, guys which is just a, what I'd like to call a vocative comma. It's just the comma in hello, Dolly. And it's not a, an, an emphatic pause. But Bob Mankoff writes jokes, and all of his captions, all of the artist's captions, he thinks of as dialogue and jokes, and he thinks they should be punctuated for speech, not for grammar. And he wanted, he, he got upset when I put that comma in. And I was so surprised because that comma just seemed harmless and obvious to me. And if I had pinched my thumb the way you indicated <laughs> and just thought about it a little bit, I could have said, 
something more coherent to Bob Mankoff instead of what I actually did say. We had quite a heated argument, and I could have said something closer to, um, well, actually, I write jokes myself sometimes, Bob, and the punctuation, I realize, is there for effect. But this particular comma is just a convention, and nobody is going to trip over it. It does not ruin the joke. In my view, a New Yorker reader would miss that comma and would think there was something missing and would think there was something wrong. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest is Mary Norris, copy editor at The New Yorker for more than 30 years and author of Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen, which is just out in paperback. Shortly, her colorful personal story, including her memorable first job at a public swimming pool in Cleveland, checking people for athlete's foot, a job which, as you'll hear, required connections. But first, the power of the dash. You wrote a lot about dashes. I love dashes. Yes, dashes are very versatile. Tell me. Tell me about how can we use the dash, because I, I want my listeners to come out of here throwing in dashes and commas in places that Uh-oh. that would that would pass your muster and would and would show that I know the I'm defending the English language as I communicate with you. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> well, I would say about the dash that because it's so versatile and because you can use it in place sometimes of a set of commas or in place of a semicolon, the dash is a good way to just keep moving, to get your thoughts out and, ha- and string them together somehow. But when you're writing for publication or for a professional eyes, if you're writing a, a letter f- you know, to apply for a job, you want your punctuation to be stricter, and so the dash is kind of loose and you use it when it's appropriate, but otherwise there's a place for the period, there's a place for the comma, there's even a place for the semicolon, the tricky one. I'm so hyper aware of all this punctuation after reading That's your good. book. So thank, thank you, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, and, and by the way, I, was, I have to admit, I was very intimidated in our email exchange because <laughs> I'm sure people have told you this, right? I mean, Yes, it's, yes, I'm embarrassed about that. No reason to be intimidated, especially in an email exchange. I only copy edit things that are for publication and that I'm getting paid for. question a lot of people often have is, can you begin a sentence with and? Yes, yes, that's an old bugaboo that people's third grade teachers taught them, or maybe even in high school, it must have gotten repeated a lot that you don't begin a sentence with and or but. Mm, you do when when it's effective. Yes, there's no reason not to begin a sentence with and or but. But let me add, Between You and Me is not simply an empowering book about how to use the English language more effectively. It is part memoir. And shortly, Mary Norris will weigh in on one of the most contested grammar issues of the day. What is the most appropriate personal pronoun for a transgendered individual? Why ask Mary Norris? When I was 40, my younger brother declared that he was transgendered and wanted to be my sister. And it's exactly right that um, I was not a very supportive 
sibling at that point because I was the only girl in the family, and I had always felt that that was my only distinction. In a few moments, we'll hear more about the brother who has become Mary Norris's sister. She's an entertainer. You may know of her. On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious, I invite you to subscribe to the Wavemaker podcast for free on iTunes or stream it on SoundCloud, but only if you're insanely curious. But I do want you to tell me about your life a little bit, because reading your book, I'm, I'm really, I can't get this image out of my head as you as a girl in Cleveland, was it, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. And that you know everybody's got that first or one of those first jobs that really sort of left an impact on them. The foot checker at the pool. <laughs> Tell me about the foot checker. Well, it was my very first job. I was 15 and a half, and I was very eager to be financially independent. And this job, my, my father got me this job by giving the councilman a, a bottle of whiskey, I believe. And it was for the Department of Recreation in the city. My father was a Cleveland City fireman. and. In Cleveland, at the city pools, they had this position called the a key girl or a key boy, and what we did was, besides cleaning the bathrooms, we sat at this little on this little bench that had a wooden platform with a foot-shaped platform on top of a stick. And when people came into the pool, they had a, there was this big emphasis on sanitation. So they had to wade through this pool of disinfectant. And then before they could go in the pool, they had to have their feet checked. A person had to put one foot at a time up on this foot-shaped platform and bend over and use her fingers to spread the toes apart. And I would let the person into the pool after that act. And what I was supposed to be doing, it turns out, is keeping out anyone who had athlete's foot. I never really honestly knew what athlete's foot looked like. <laughs> but I figure there must have been a your big curiosity, epidemic your curious Your curiosity had its limits. You never... In those days, yes. I think I also have a little streak of denialism. I did not want to know because as soon as I found out about athlete's foot, I would catch it, I suppose. <laughs> My publisher was trying to find, um, find in this foot checking some kind of a slogan for the book, and they said, too bad you're not a fact checker. We could make it from foot checking to fact checking. And I came up with from toes to prose, which I thought was pretty good, but they didn't use that either. So when I read you writing about copy editing, it, it's really interesting, and there's passion there. So these are, ex- at the very least, excellent writers. Some are better than others. Are they just thankful for your presence? Or is it like, I wish I didn't have to go through this step? <laughs> I was just thinking about that this morning. The best writers are the ones who are most open to copy editing and to query proofreading and to having people make suggestions. They want to see what effect the writing has. And a writer who is just starting out will be especially protective of prose, I I believe. And I I was thinking that sometimes I think it might feel to a writer like having to take medicine. (laughs) We're going to fix this up. (laughs) And uh, I probably have been guilty sometimes of scouring something too much. You know, you can, um, I, I think one of the writers, it may have even been E.B. White, once complained that whoever was copy editing his work was like, I'm instead of oiling a watch, um, 
she was taking it apart and putting it back together, and there was no no necessity to do that because writing is also a human act; it's not mechanical. So, we do have different. Uh, levels of involvement with writers. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest is Mary Norris, copy editor for the New Yorker magazine and author of Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen, a New York Times bestseller just out in paperback. I have to go back to your father, the fireman. Mm-hmm. And then your mother was what? Housekeeper. Fireman and a housekeeper produced a daughter who was insanely curious about language, has made her life in language, and now is a published author. Did they do certain things in the house that that made you who you are? <laughs> they made me want to get out of it. <laughs> now, my parents were wonderful. My father was a fireman, but he was a little benighted educational-wise. That's a terrible sentence right there. What I mean, though, is that my father, always wanting the best for me, wanted me to get married and settle down in the neighborhood. He wanted somebody. He wanted a daughter who had a nice figure and would get a husband and give him grandchildren and live nearby. And somebody, and anyway, all I wanted to do was get out of Cleveland. And, um, and I succeeded in doing that against my father's wishes. He finally had to go along with it because I tricked him into letting me go to school in New Jersey, of all places. Where did you go? Rutgers University in New Brunswick. I left beautiful Cleveland for fabulous New Brunswick. <laughs> Some people go to Paris. I went to New Jersey. So, but what I think, the, there, was, um, there was creativity in the house and there was intelligence. My father was very smart. He was not just a fireman, he rose to become a chief. He knew, you know, he took tests to the civil service exams and he got ahead that way. My mother had a lot of native intelligence, high school education, but a wonderful ear for song lyrics. She, you know, she could sing verbatim any song she had heard from the time she was a child. She still knew all those lyrics. But my big escape as a child was into books. And from very early on, I wanted to write books. I wanted to be a writer. And all the while that I was, from the very beginning, when I was at The New Yorker, and earlier, in grade school, in, in high school, in college, I always wrote. And I always had the hope of publishing a book. And before this book that finally got published. This is the difference between being a writer and being an author. I've had the sensation now of being an author, and it's a pretty good one. (laughs) But I'd written a novel, I'd written reportage, I'd written a memoir, and I had no success in publishing any of these things. And then somebody from the web department came and asked if I would write something about commas for the website because the writer Ben Yagoda had made fun of our commas in the New York Times. And my first thought was, oh, could there be a more boring subject? Please, let me give you my memoir. Let me give you my novel. But um, I realized I had been a copy editor for so many years, and there was nobody who was going to do it if I didn't do it. Because my boss, the head of the department, she has too much to do to be writing about commas. And I was the writer, as well as the one who knew about commas. So they came to the person they thought could do it, and I decided, well, I should have some team spirit and I'll do it. 
So I did it and I was so surprised that there was so much interest in it. And they wanted me then to write about other facets of New Yorker style. This was this was what year roughly? This was 2012. So you, 2012, so you had already been cop editing in one form or another for how many years at the New Yorker? Probably 30 years. 30 years <laughs> writing but not getting published and so some people's spirits might have been defeated by that point. What kept your spirit alive? Well I had been published a little. I'd had a few pieces in the talk of the town but um, what happens in publishing is that you need to have a relationship with an editor. That's to, in order to get published regularly. And when editors left, and editors do come and go from places, I would find myself bereft again and have to start all over. And I wasn't good at that. I wasn't good at the starting all over. Um, by the time that those those girls from the web department came and knocked on my door. I really was uh, pretty discouraged. My memoir had just been turned down by an agent, and I realized that at the New Yorker, although I'd been published from time to time, I was firmly pigeonholed as a proofreader and a copy editor. Nobody thought of me as a writer. And, and actually, at that point, I thought about my father. You know, he was a fireman. He hadn't set out to be a fireman. He took that job because it was a good job and he could um, support his family. What did he set out to be? Well, I don't know what my father dreamt of being. He didn't dream of being a writer, I know. But I don't, he didn't dream of being a fireman. Um, I don't, that's really interesting. I'm not sure what my father would have, maybe a gentleman of leisure. <laughs> I don't know. but. You know, one day he, I realized, well, that Dad just woke up one day and realized, guess I'm a fireman. And I was sitting in my office entertaining the thought that that's, maybe that's what I'm going to be. Maybe that's what it'll say on my tombstone. She was a good copy editor. And it, was that so bad? And I was on, you know, on the verge of reluctant acceptance. I would not stop writing. I would never stop writing. I would always bounce back from a rejection. And, you know, that's how it finally happened. I, I, the agent who had turned down this memoir, I went back to with an idea after I'd written a few of these columns for the website about punctuation and also I was writing about pencils because I still work with pencil and I enjoy pencils very much. Um, I went back to him with the idea for a book on pencils and punctuation, and he said, now that there would be an audience for. And suddenly I had a contract and I was writing a book, and it wasn't easy, and there are still times, even when I go on the road to um, promote the book, and I have to talk about commas, I think, oh no, <laughs> commas again. But as soon as somebody asks me a question, I'm engaged. I really do like commas. I really do like the mechanics of the written word. You grew up the only girl in your family, two siblings. You are no longer the only girl in your family. Tell me that story. Well, that was actually the subject of the memoir I was working on when I got the call to write about commas. Yes, when we were in uh, middle age, I was, I believe I was 40, my younger brother declared 
that he was transgendered and wanted to be my sister. And it's exactly right that um, I was not a very supportive sibling at that point because I was the only girl in the family and I had always felt that that was my only distinction. My older brother was the oldest, D, and now my sister was the baby of the family, the youngest, and I had no distinction. It's, you know, the middle child is often <laughs> resentful, I think, at always being the middle child, but the only thing I clung to was that I was the only girl. And I wasn't even that great a girl, you know, because my the brothers both seemed to me to get more attention from everybody, and they never had to do the dishes. They never had to do things like make their own bed, and and you can hear it, can't you? I'm still bitter about that. <laughs> how, how old was she when she... She was, I think, about 40, which is pretty far along in life to make such a drastic change. But it was very hard for me to witness this. I had, I loved my brother. I just loved him and admired him. Um, he was very musical and very artistic and very wise. Too. And I felt I was losing all that because Dee was turning into like a flibberty gibbet type of girl, you know, very sexy. And the kind of music that she played was kind of shocking to me. People know her from the gig she had in New York. She rode around the streets on a gigantic tricycle with a harp strapped to the back and an accordion and sang Harry Ruby songs, Hello, I Must Be Going. And she had a version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Actually, this was the one thing that she did that I loved. is called Rudolph the Disgruntled Reindeer and had hilarious, very profane lyrics. Also funny because Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was one of the songs our grandmother used to play at the piano and we used to stand around the piano and sing it and so it had special meaning for me. But what finally happened that broke me down about D was, um, well, you know, I had to learn to use the name D and to use all the feminine pronouns or her feelings would be terribly hurt. And what, 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 when D was a, was a male, uh, what, was, what, was, what was his name? You know, I'm not even going to say because it makes me sad. Dee's name now is, has a stage name, Baby D, and D was the first initial, the first letter of Dee's name, so it was shortened. And and it makes you sad. And we actually talked about it a little bit on the phone, on the phone before I came here. But I, you know, I asked you because you have a great sense of humor, and you meant you told me that. For a while, you lost your sense of humor, and then you got it back. Tell me about that journey. Well, that was um, in trying to maintain a relationship with Dee. You know, we'd, we'd been confidants, and we reached this point where I wasn't sure I wanted to know the things that Dee was telling me, and Dee wasn't sure I wanted to know them either. And we had, we'd had a good relationship. We, you know, lots of banter. When you, you know, when you grow up with siblings, there's things that only the two of you understand. There's kind of a private communication, and we were losing that because the relationship that Dee would have now with my mother and father would be different now that she was um, female, now that she was a daughter instead of a son. So I would just say things that were cruel thinking they were funny and and it would hurt Dee's feelings and I was 
you know, maybe I, I would actually feel bad, but I wasn't able to stop myself from um, lashing out. I was angry. And, and I didn't see anything very funny about transgender. And, you know, there are actually some pretty funny things about um, the transgender life. Somebody once who had known Dee before she changed gender was at a party and, and didn't recognize her and pointed her out and said, who's that lady? And I was able to say, that's no lady, that's my brother. <laughs> and I, I was even amused by that and Dee was glad that I finally could see some humor in it. Well, let me just skip ahead a bit. Dee went off to Europe for a while and um, had some change of heart and came back to take care of our parents in Cleveland. Dee turned out to be the daughter who did that job. And that, above all, was what made me reconsider this whole thing. This is a good person, you know. This is, this is my beloved sibling, and I will always be grateful to you for doing this. So from there, I got on a new footing with Dee and it helped to spend more time with her because that um, accustomed me more to the way she was and the things she liked. And I got used to her and I got better at using the feminine pronouns. So now we are good friends again and we have a good relationship and I encourage everybody to Google Baby D and look at her um, songs on YouTube because she writes beautiful songs, some really sad and some really funny. And I'm just curious how your parents reacted and how she broke the news to them. Well, it was a little tragic at that point because my father, at the same time Dee was changing gender, was losing his marbles. Um, he was, I don't think he had Alzheimer's, but he might as well have. He was just senile um, and so and bedridden and and at one point didn't recognize D at all and um, once D went home though you know D played the piano and my father knew uh, hey that's somebody I know <laughs> he, he wasn't sure whether it was his mother or or who it might be but he he recognized at that point when Dee started playing the piano. My mother had a little, she had the same kind of trouble I did. She felt rejected by Dee because she had made a son and, and now this child didn't like the way she had made it and that, that she felt that as a rejection. But she did accept Dee and whenever she got mad at Dee, I remember I, I got my hands on her diary after she died, and she had kept a diary once Dee came back, and she was making an effort to use the feminine pronouns, she and her. But when she got mad at Dee, she went back through that diary and changed them all back to he and him. <laughs> oh. And that's the way the diary stands? Yes. <laughs> the pronouns run so deep. Oh, it's so interesting to me because maybe it's appropriate that that you would experience this, somebody who spent their lives checking proper pronouns, you know, and this has really been one of the big stories in the past year or two or more. How do we identify transgender men and women? What pronouns do we use? There's a they, a suggestion for they, right? Mm -hmm, yes. What's your feeling on that as an editor? As an editor? 
Well, even as an editor, I feel that you should call people what they want to be called. As an editor, I would find it difficult to regard they as singular. It is the big issue right now in um, copy editing circles, the, the singular there, not only for uh, transgender people, they, for he or she, but in terms of grammar, um, you know, everybody has their own opinion. Uh, here at The New Yorker, we would try to change that to everyone has his opinion. They all have their own opinions. People need to, you know, we'd change it somehow to a way that wouldn't jump out. I mean, that's important that it blend in. And I'm thinking about your basic principles. Uh, there's clarity, and I remember you talking about how your job is to ensure that the reading experience moves along, keeps moving forward, that people don't get stuck. And they happens to make me stuck in relation to describing transgender people because even if it turned out to be the best term, it, and maybe sometimes things need time to get used to, just like it took you time to get used to the, the reality of yes. Dee becoming a woman. So maybe sometimes, well, you know, you can't instantly find the perfect pronoun, but they does stop me and therefore slow down my reading experience. It, it is confusing. We're used to they being a plural and we don't know what it means and you're supposed to know what a pronoun refers to. I have a friend who is a lexicographer um, and works up at Merriam-Webster and he showed me something in Webster's Second Unabridged. There is the word it never got picked up on though, von, T-H-O-N, which somebody suggested as a gender neutral singular pronoun, meaning it's a contraction of that one, von. <laughs> so I'm gonna throw that out there in case von, that one, should be picked up. But there are all kinds of schemes, but it's not going to come, it's not going to be imposed you know, with any success by anyone, I don't think. Sweden, they now have the, the pronoun hen that they're trying to popularize, popularize for he or she. And if they get people young, there's a chance. You know, and I believe they're using it in preschool, so they're getting them young. How successful has Between You and Me been? It's going into paperback, which is a good sign. That is a good sign. It's been quite successful. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for five weeks, and I was surprised at that because the interest in the book that originally came from agents and editors and publishers, I thought, well, those are all word people. Of course, they're interested, but will the general public be interested? And I was really uh, gratified. It turns out everybody has a stake in the language, and and so um, they everybody wants to know you know, they want to be feel secure in their use of the language, or they want to argue with somebody <laughs> who they think is over-secure in her use of the language. The title of the book, Between You and Me and Confessions of a Comic Queen, came from the agent. We had a lot of discussion about what to call the book. I like Between You and Me as the title because, of course, it teaches somebody right away as soon as, as somebody looks at the cover. Uh, he or she learns that you don't say between you and I, God forbid, it's between you and me. And there's a whole chapter on the book that breaks that down into why, on um, the premise that maybe if you understand why a thing is the way it is, that'll make it easier to adopt. Between you and me, 
Mary Norris, thank you so much for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. If you love what you just heard, I hope you will consider subscribing for free on iTunes to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. For those of you who are novices to podcasts, if you have an iPhone, look for the icon with the purple microphone and search for Wavemaker. You can also find this program on SoundCloud. My website is wavemaker.me. Thank you for listening.